Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. From bearded wizards to gestures and even martyrs, there are many different personalities that you will run into during your career as a developer. These different personalities and personality types can work together or cause strife in your life depending on how well you can relate and work with them. In this second episode on types of programmers you'll meet, we're going to take a look at a few of these personalities talking about their strengths, weaknesses, and how to best work with or manage them. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, this episode was supposed to be recorded last week, so I'll tell what happened last week. Last week, we had a line of really strong storms that hit Nashville, and I think there were like 100,000 people without power at one point. I looked out behind the house when the power cut off, and you know those like those big balloon things that wave back and forth at the car dealerships, like the balloon yeah. stick figure Gumby looking guys? That's what the trees, the oaks behind the house were looking like. Wow. They were just going nuts. Yeah. And they're big limbs that broke down. And and so we only lost power for a few hours Sunday night, but we also lost power Monday morning. I think at one point Monday night and once or twice during the day Tuesday. And so we decided not to record so that it wouldn't get screwed up. Uh, basically mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're going around repairing, you know, all the damage and they had to shut power off for different places and it was without warning. Nashville is not really doing all that well because we got hit by the tornadoes and then COVID and then this. And so it's going to be a little bit much, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's why we didn't get to record last week. So how about you? Well, uh, I'm going to be a cartoon character. I already look like one. (laughs) I already am a bit of a character. Uh, Well, my voice at least. They're not designing the character after me, I don't think. We're creating some cartoons for our children's ministry curriculum. And I get to be one of the voice actors. Also one of the audio techs. That's, you know, what happens when you're uh, two on the Enneagram. Uh, you do everything. So, uh, so far, I've created two characters. Um, well, I, I didn't really create the characters. I created the voice for the characters. The, our youth pastor uh, created the, the scripts and everything. But uh, I am, one of them is a rambling Abraham, and uh, the other one is a redneck named Jimmy. See, I would think Moses would be the rambler, you know, for the whole wandering around. Uh, yeah, but Moses had like the the speech issue, so and yeah, because Aaron had to talk for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, strangely enough, though, I didn't have trouble uh, coming up with a voice for either of those. That doesn't entirely <laughs> surprise me. Yeah. Well. Got some sun this past uh, couple weekends. Uh, I don't know if Will can tell on the uh, on the video, but uh, I'm a bit still a bit red in the face from uh, from this past weekend. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a text, and I had just finished my final project. He sent me a text saying, "Hey, you want to go riding this weekend? I just bought a motorcycle, and he'd been talking about buying a bike for for a while." 
And so like he had actually purchased it before all the COVID stuff and he picked it up that week. And so we went out riding. I did not think to put on sunscreen on my arms until we uh, got to where we were riding. So I got a little bit of sun on my arms. And then uh, this past weekend, it was a little cool. So I had long sleeves on, but uh, we went over to Amanda's parents for uh, Mother's Day and uh, doing the social distancing thing. We sat outside. They don't have a lot of shade. So I was direct sunlight right on my face. I can tell. So, um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little red. I've been putting like lotion and stuff, trying to keep it from, uh, from hurting too much. Yeah, you look angry. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, but I look it. Yeah. Uh, though I am a little frustrated about one thing. I didn't write a single line of code last week. Mm. I was in meetings all week long, or I was training people on something or assisting in triaging a bug fix. Uh, mostly it was meetings. It got to the point where I said something to my manager about it. I told him I couldn't get any work done because I was constantly being interrupted. And it wasn't like coworkers or anyone like that interrupting me. It was director level people who had real legitimate questions that they needed answered. So like it wasn't even something that I could go, hey, I can't talk right now. It was legitimate interruptions. But uh, he said he would talk to the other managers and directors about going through him for information. And then he would just like condense it all down and send me like one email. He's like, I'll try to do it one a week, but it may be one a day just getting updates and stuff on things that has significantly improved my life this week. I did get a call from a former coworker asking for help with something, though. I didn't really mind that. Um, it was also nice to catch up with her uh, and what's going on with her family. So all that said, we're going to be talking about teams in book club. You can lose with good players, but you cannot win without them. For the next couple of months, we're going to be going through John Maxwell's The 17 Essential Qualities of a Team Player. Now, we're not going to go through each one as that would take 17 weeks. And honestly, you guys can read the book faster than I can go through one a week. However, each week, I'll highlight one of the qualities that stood out to me as I'm reading through the book. Now, this first week, we're going to look at the very first quality. There's a reason Maxwell put it as number one. It is adaptable. And a quote from that is, if you won't change for the team, the team may change you. He starts with a story about a very adaptable man in the music industry, Quincy Jones, and how his adaptability allowed him to work with some of the best musicians from Frank Sinatra to Michael Jackson. He even branched out of music and produced movies and TV shows, including one of my favorite childhood shows, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Maxwell then lists out four qualities of being adaptable. First is teachable. People who are adaptable are always learning and willing to take on the role of a student to grow. The next is emotionally secure. And in that, they are not afraid of change and accept new situations and responsibilities. The third is creative. When difficult times come, creative people find a way to make things happen. 
And finally is service-minded. Adaptable people are focused on serving the team, not just their own agendas. Maxwell concludes the chapter with three ways to become more adaptable. Build a habit of learning, reevaluate your role, and think outside the lines. And I'll have a link to the book in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, uh, we've put comments of water bottles on hold for a short time. Uh, there are a few reasons for this. Uh, the first is, is that we're almost the end of our stock of water bottles, and it's going to take a while to get some new ones because of all the uh, stuff going on in the world. If you guys would prefer something other than a water bottle, obviously we're open to suggestions. Uh, just keep it reasonable because remember that you know we don't really make money on this. Uh, the other thing is we've not been getting unique comments on the website or on social media. Uh, most of the comments that we do get are actually from people that we've already sent water bottles to. So if you haven't commented, now's a good time to do it because people probably aren't <laughs> commenting as much as they would normally. So it's a good way to get it in there. If you'd like a CDP water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We also post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we're also on Instagram and Tumblr, although maybe not as much as we should be. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. If you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. As developers, we are a rather unique bunch of individuals. Either development attracted us because of certain personality characteristics, or we developed them based on the software development world. In either case, we have a lot of interesting personalities within the community. These personality traits and styles come together to form certain archetypes. To the outside world, these archetypes might seem quirky and strange. Some personality types are strange even within the development community. Rarely will you find someone who is completely a particular one, but you'll notice these traits, some stronger than others, in most of the developers you meet in your career. While researching the different archetypes of developers, we broke them down into three groupings, coding styles, knowledge expression, and general personality. This is the second of three episodes talking about the types of programmers you'll meet in your career. It focuses on the various interpersonal styles you'll encounter. If you haven't done so, go back and listen to our episode on coding styles before this one. In this episode, we'll discuss each of these interpersonal archetypes. We'll talk about their strengths and weaknesses. Then we'll finish up each one with how to best work with this archetype if you find yourself on a team with them. Now, about going back and listening to the coding styles, the nice thing about these episodes is they are interchangeable, so you don't have to listen to them in a particular order. It's just they are related by topic. Yeah, I just think that the way you laid out the framework in that initial... Yeah, it is really good. ...was helpful, blended with this, and I wasn't sure that it would yeah. go the other way. So I was like, yeah, just listen to it first, because we listened to it first. <laughs> <laughs> so, so take that advice with the grain of salt that it is offered with. <laughs> is that margarita uh, basically salt? Basically like any advice. Yeah, any advice you get from me should have a big freaking huge ocean of salt with yes, it. Yes, it should, it so should definitely be salt rimmed with, uh, with a lime. 
So speaking of dropping salt, the first archetype is the bearded wizard. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. (laughs) This wizard is the neck beard hidden away in the basement whom you only call on when you have a Balrog to defeat. Yeah, so while verbose storytellers who have trouble staying on topic in meetings, that wouldn't be like anybody we know, these developers are the biggest hitter typically brought in on a project when something really difficult is happening or something crazy needs to be built quickly. I brought our guy in on a thing I was working on earlier this week, although he might not really prefer to be called a bearded wizard, but I was having trouble with it was a combination of Elasticsearch and AWS Lambda and some other code in our system that I didn't fully understand. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the three things. And it was kind of like a three-body problem. Yeah. You know, this is your shock troops that you bring in for that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Th- this is the person who you may not want in every team meeting, but you pull them in because you've got something that is either going to take one of the regular team members an extraordinary long amount of time to do or to even figure out how to do. Also, I do want to point out, we're, we're talking about a bearded wizard. This is a, a personality type, so it doesn't have to be a guy. I didn't put this in here. I, I just thought about it because when you said that, I was like, I actually have worked with a, a female wizard. I don't want to call her a, a female bearded wizard because that's just rude. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, have, I have worked with someone who, a female who fit this profile though. They were, you brought them in when you had to do something super complex, but you didn't want them in every meeting because they would derail the meetings inadvertently just with their stories of the old days and of, you know. Well, and the technical detail too sometimes. It's like, hey, sometimes I don't need this thing to work 100% of the time. Sometimes 95% is good Mm -hmm. enough. Right. Like that's one of the weaknesses that can be there for this archetype. No, you don't usually have them there. Usually they're working on some obscure area of the code base. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like in the weird corners a lot or in the scaling stuff or in architecture. They're not typically writing angular forms. Yeah. These are, these are not the people who are doing your, your main line of business code. They're doing that very obscure service that you call that to you is just a black box. You pass something in and something comes out. You don't know exactly what goes on in there. It's magic. It's really cool. But you don't want to touch it because, you know, there be dragons there. Yeah. Um, they also tend to be a little bit protective yeah. of their little corner, um, which is fine because it turns out that not a lot of people want their little corner. <laughs> so everybody's happier that way. Yeah, they're they're kind of known sometimes as magicians because, like I was saying, it's like a, a black box. They're, the code is like magic. You don't understand all the technical aspects of it, but you just know that it works. Like Will was saying, you, you want to keep them in your obscure areas because they will distract the other coworkers. They're going to be a distraction to your workhorse developers, to your line of business developers. Because they're going to be talking about stories of building their own Linux kernel or trying to do things in like in C when your other programmers are working in C sharp or Angular, you know? Yeah. The other good use um, for them is making your other developers more efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really good at being damage multipliers or figuring out 
you know, how can we code this so that other people can use it broadly across the code base? Yeah. Having the deep understanding of the code base and of the platform that lets them do that. Mm -hmm. So speaking of deep understanding, the next archetype is the literalist. (laughs) Yeah, the literalist is a person who likely knows a lot of details about the system and the code base. And these are like specifics so odd that most others don't even know them. However, they have trouble when it comes to generalizing or focusing on the business use, like how the users plan to interact with the system or application. Something Will said uh, about the, uh, the wizard kind of applies here where it's like, you know, they get so far into like the details that it working 95% of the time is way more than the actual business was hoping for. They were hoping for 75% of the time. And, you know, you can get it to 95. Woohoo. But the literalist is going to be like, it's not working 100% of the time. We got to fix it. Right. (laughs) And so that obviously tells you one place that these people are uh, very good to have is QA. Mm -hmm. They tend to, I will say the whole thing about not being able to generalize to the level of what the users do or what they expect is also probably a little bit of an issue at times that you're going to have to figure out how to work around when you have one of these people on your team. Mm -hmm. Because they work really well paired with somebody that understands the business aspects. Mm -hmm. Because if you put those two people in a room and they get along, you'll come out with something that is way better than either person could come out with by themselves. Yeah, and the the key there is that they get along. Yeah, because if they don't, the explosion is spectacular. (laughs) The, The trick is it's not very difficult to get the person who understands the business to respect the literalist, it's difficult to get the yeah. literalist to respect the person who understands the business. What I have seen is where you you do that pair where it doesn't work is the literalist has no respect or very little respect for the person on the business side and they're out here in the weeds. They can't see the forest for the blades of grass. That's how detail-oriented they are. And they can't see how right. what they're trying what they're trying to do. They're so focused on optimizing this method or this particular procedure or this one line that they don't or this one like pathway that they don't see how it's interacting with everything else. And that oh hey, what you're trying to optimize is only ever used in like five percent of the cases. Yeah, I mean I've seen somebody like this um, who was extremely good technically. Yes. But they were optimizing code that ran once a year. Yeah, I've seen that. For like five minutes on January 1st. Mm -hmm. Tops. And it's like, bro, there's stuff that is running constantly. That's the actual thing that provides business value that we get paid for. Like, this is like a cleanup script. Nobody, you know, nobody cares as long as it gets done in a reasonable amount of time. And trying to get that through to them was very, very difficult. Yeah. And again, this is a spectrum thing, right? Because people are you know, sometimes on the extreme, like this guy, and then there's others that are sort of trend that way, but not always. Mm -hmm. So uh, you'll also see a lot of them that really, really like their low level languages because, oh, it's more efficient than your high level language, but it's like, it takes you 10 times as long to build anything. And you have weird errors that we can't find the answer to because you're doing low level memory manipulation for an extra 2% speed. Mm -hmm. And there are times where you do need that. Yeah. Like video editing. Yeah. For instance. There are definitely use cases for having that low level or that that detail oriented. 
that's the thing. The literalists do a great job when they're given very detail-oriented tasks, especially if they're tasks that other developers find tedious, but for one reason or another cannot be automated. Right. And they're real good at gold-plating things, too, if you leave them alone. The next is the last in, first out. The LIFO. Yeah. (laughs) This is a personality type that I have a very hard time dealing with. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that a LIFO will give your task or project their full attention so long as you're the most recent person to ask for their assistance, which means you have to nag them constantly. Mm -hmm. And this is a personality type that often gets promoted into management, especially in companies without a clear delineation between the support role and the developer role, because they're acting as a support manager. And like, these people tend to be really good support managers because they can fight fires. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, it's almost like a prioritization algorithm because if somebody's screaming at them about something and they go deal with that thing, then they're going to trend towards spending the most time on dealing with the thing about which the most people are screaming, right? It works great for support, but at least yeah. that's what they think is going to happen. What actually happens is, is there's one or two people that figure out the trick and then they nag more. Um, yeah. And then the whole thing goes away. Yeah. Well, the thing with this this personality type is the last person to ask anything of them gets their full attention, regardless of priority. I worked with a DBA who was like this, which was really annoying because we would be we were on a project team, and this DBA was still getting calls from a previous role uh, in support, and would get distracted from our higher priority project to go do these low priority support things, which could be done by other people that should have been passed on. Right. And what we had to do in that case was get their manager to start fielding those calls and just get the people who are calling them used to going through a different process because they had been used to calling this person directly and that just, that didn't work anymore. I mean, it's it's like you're taking a stack-based architecture and trying to put priority on it and that requires another architecture (laughs) which means another person because that ain't theirs they also have trouble with larger more time-consuming tasks because they're just so easily distracted by the next thing that comes along the trick to successfully working with these people is to isolate them while you're working with them so in other words you don't meet them at their desk and work through something you meet them at your desk yeah and work through something so that the distractions don't come in there because if you don't do that you're never going to get anything done because they're constantly going to be jumping off. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to be popping off the top of the stack. If you're working remote with them, trick that I have found is to... Is to hack their firewall? No. (laughs) Is to to get them on a call. If it's just like, get them on a a WebEx or a Zoom call and be like, hey, um, can I watch you do this? Because like, I'd really like to see how it's done just for my own learning and stuff. And then... Technically, you can just ignore them, <laughs> turn the volume down a little bit, ignore them and work on your own stuff while they're doing it, but it'll keep them focused. If they start to get distracted, you'll, you'll notice them not, ex- not talking through what they're doing and you can say, hey, you know, what were you doing again? <laughs> yeah, um, I've, I've actually pulled that one and I, you know, I hate that you have to do yeah. that, but I mean, it's, it's just a personality type. Mm-hmm. And speaking of personality types that you have to manage, there is also the fanboy or fangirl. We're going to, for simplicity, call them fanboys. 
just so that we don't have to say that over and over again. Yeah. Um, but a fanboy will put too much time into the things they do from anime to console gaming, and they, they get really, really overly obsessed with a thing. Yeah. Right. And to some degree that that's necessary and it's a good habit to have to learn things. Mm -hmm. But it, where it becomes a problem is where everything deviates back into that. Yeah. Like obsession would be an understatement in this case. Yeah. The fanatic coder has their favorite language or framework and will never even think about changing. Even asking them to do something different is an insult. So, like, this is a sub genre under the the fanboy fangirl where that fanboyism applies to coding languages and frameworks it's like the do you, i mean i don't see it as much anymore because almost everything is cross platform but uh, do you remember the the console wars back when everybody was like yep. up in arms between which is better the xbox or the ps I don't know. Nintendo's always been their own thing. They sort of do their own stuff. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you have to have an Nintendo. They're sort of outside the hierarchy, but yeah. 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 But then there's like the Xbox versus PlayStation versus PC gaming. I don't know if it's still a big thing because I'm just not like, yeah, since Jason's not around, I'm just not as much into it. Almost everyone I know is PC gamer these days. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the best platform. <laughs> so there so you go. Here we here we have it from Will. But you know, and so it's like it's like that where you'll have someone who is like Angular is the best front end framework for everything. And right. Yeah, in in some cases it's a matter of that's the first thing they learn and they haven't gotten to the point in their career yet like is, this is different from this is the first thing I learned. So it's what I know. And I haven't gotten to the point where I realize, Oh, Hey, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. This is like someone who knows that and is like, still, no, I will always use angular for everything I build. Even if it's a statically generated page, it'll be a statically generated with angular. I don't know if that's even possible, but you know, yeah, I'll put it in a resource file and like load it. <laughs> Like GraphQL, that sucker out there <laughs> from a text file, something. No, like we're we're being extreme here for a reason, y'all, because that's that's. But we've known people like this. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, most of the people you know are not going to be that extreme, but they're going to have some strong preferences. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with sometimes having two different team members who have very drastically different opinions about yeah the the best framework to use. Yeah, the rough part there is that when you have two of these people on a team mm -hmm. and they sharply disagree, anything you do suddenly becomes political. Yes. Versus an implementation detail. Mm -hmm. If you have two of these people on a team and they do agree, anything you do different to them suddenly becomes political and you are outnumbered by default. Yep. If you have one person like this on your team, anything you do has to have, you have to like do valid like all sorts of background research and prove why what you're doing is better than anything they could throw at you i have i've had some conversations like this i've had managers who are kind of like this who got stuck in an old way of doing things and it's like that's that made sense back in the 90s early 2000s when you were a coder but you've been in management since the mid 2000s and this was a while back. Yeah, the world's different. This was like 
five years ago, but it was like, it ain't like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, some of the, uh, the assumptions that are made just really, mm-hmm. they stick around. Um, and speaking of um, assumptions sticking around, you also have another sub archetype, uh, which is the hipster. And so you run into people that write all their code in Vim, um, which I've done at different points. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you give them, you know, a really nice tool like Visual Studio or something, oh, I'm going to write C Sharp code in Vim, which by the way, don't ever do that. That's awful because I have tried it and I, I wrote like Hello World in it. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. I prefer to write C in Vim than to do it in Visual Studio. Visual Studio is actually quite a pain yeah, in C. Uh, yeah, it really is. So last year, in the fall semester of school, I was taking a class at MTSU. It was an undergrad level class I had to have as a prereq. And we were learning C. We we could write it in anything, but we had to like log on to the the Linux server at campus to upload it. So I just found it easier to log on and write it on the server in Vim. Yeah. And I got pretty good at it. Then this past semester, we were doing C++ in the class I was taking, and we pretty much had to do it in Visual Studio. Some of the Mac users had other things that they could use, but it was pretty much like, I'm only going to assist you if it's Visual Studio. The assignments were set for doing it in Visual Studio. So I'm like, I mean, I like Visual Studio for C-sharp development, but for C++, that was just a major pain. Yeah, I didn't have a real good experience with C++. Like, I mean, I used, you know, back in school, I think we had Borland for that. That tells you how old I am. But I remember um, Borland. I had it in high school. Yeah, and then doing like, uh, you know, I've done Ruby on Rails Mm -hmm. in Vim. When you got stuff that's really uh, heavily reliant on a command line, it's really nice to just be able to type and then hit a few keys and run something and switch back. Yeah. That is a very, very fast workflow, even if you have a total piece of junk for a computer, which you've had before. Yeah. <laughs> when you were <laughs> learning to code again. Yep. I was going to say, I, I got last, uh, last fall, I got pretty good at, uh, at Vim, you know, because I was doing it. We had to turn in stuff every, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week for that class. It was a lot of work. I didn't think it was that difficult. It was just a lot of work. And I think that's what got most people was just the sheer amount of work. It seemed overwhelming to me at first. And then once we kind of settled into the semester, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just like every other day I spend about an hour working on it and I'm good. But yeah, I I don't consider myself that much of a hipster coder because I like to write C++ and Vim versus Visual Studio because it actually works better for that. I've had problems with it. Do it well. I mean, like you had an issue, like a weird issue with a header file. Oh yeah. Um, and I've had stuff like that happen to me where you're like, this has nothing to do with what I'm trying to fix. Yeah, it was just it was a Visual Studio thing. And so I'm I'm right there with you. I don't think it's that bad. I just wouldn't write, you know, enterprise level C sharp in Vim. Probably not going to work so well. Yeah, that's true. And it also I think depends a lot on the language too. Mm-hmm. It's real easy to fall into being a fanboy especially if you're passionate about code or about life or, you know, you just pick up this one thing and it works really well and you don't see why you should change to something else. And sometimes that's actually correct because you're seeing correctly. Yeah. I mean, for example, Will's a little bit of a fanboy when it comes to the Russian language. He's learning it. He's not an obsessive fanboy about it, 
but he's a little bit of a fanboy. Right. And I would argue too that you almost have to get to almost that fanboy level to learn something deeply. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm totally a like you got to lock it in, but I'm, I'm totally a guitar fanboy. Right. But I, I would argue that it's not pathological in those cases. No. It's more just like, hey, that's what it takes to learn it versus I'm actively giving away potential productivity or potential effectiveness or joy because I want to stick with a certain paradigm. Yeah. And that's that's where what I'm getting at here is. I'm a bit of an electric guitar fanboy because I have an electric guitar. That's what I started learning on. I really like electric. I like playing lead. I like, you know, I like the sound. I like the effects you can do with it. But if I'm playing certain songs, you know, I'm not going to play them on the electric. I'm going to play them on the acoustic because that's, they sound better on that. That's where yeah, it varies, you know? Yeah. Like for example, we recently did that episode with uh, with Yuri, and you sent the the email to his company about it in Russian. Yep, that whole back and forth was in yeah, Russian up until the point and where my, we started dealing my... dealing with details, and they included me where where you had to yeah. Get involved. And so, but you know, Will, if he had been a pathological or like a a too far extreme fanboy, he would have continued in Russian and and tried to do the interview. Yeah, and like translated for me. Whereas he was like, he got to that point. He's like, all right, we need to switch this over to English so that Beach can be involved. And that, that's where it is. Yeah. And like, what I'm getting at here is you're going to see people who have fandoms who really like things. And that's, that's pervasive in life, but especially in our culture and like the development culture. And we used to get together back when we were meeting in the office more regularly. We used to get together. Um, I mean, before we went remote work, not before COVID. Uh, we would get together with our Nintendo Switches and have like one day a week where we'd all bring them in and go to lunch and play Super Smash Brothers and stuff like that. Oh, that's a little bit of fanboy, fangirl-ism, but it did not override our work. Like when we were back in the office working, we weren't sitting there in the office on our Switches. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I've even worked with people that, you know, like we're so into sports that, you know, hey, it's like, that's cool that you coach basketball or you do whatever on the side. But when you bring it into work and you make everything at work about it and you don't work during March Madness, that's kind of bad. Mm-hmm. So the the trick, I think, is uh, with these kind of people is trying to keep this sort of thing contained so that their fanboyism is actually useful in the context you're in versus it being destructive to the context you're in. And that that's that's the management trick there. Yeah, well, like I said, what we did with the our switch parties is we made it like a one day a week long lunch thing where instead of you know people bringing them in and like playing during the day we made it all right once a week we get together we ha- we take a little bit of a longer lunch break on this day and we all go out and we sit at a restaurant and we play our switches or we go sit in the lunchroom and if it's raining and we play our switches for a little bit and then we go back to work you give them an outlet. So uh, if it's a sports fan, one thing I've seen a lot of companies do is do like, if it's something like football, do like Friday Jersey Day during football season. Or they'll do the March Madness, you know, like game tracker. Yeah. And, you know, break it all down. And that's totally fine. It's just, you got to figure out where the pressure release valve is and make sure that it's open. And don't expect everyone to have the same fandom. Yeah. 
me, I would get into a sports thing, um, more football, some baseball, a lot of hockey. Not as much on the March Madness. Yeah, I like hockey. Yeah, I I, I despise basketball. It just does not do anything for me. Yeah, Will's not into into sports. Like like you said, he likes a little bit of hockey, but he's not big into sports. So I like the fights in hockey. That's the main if, thing for me, honestly. If Will and I were working on the, at the same company, inviting me to come and participate in your March Madness brackets, yeah, that's great. Forcing Will to do it is bad. You yeah. see the difference there? It's like, invite Will. He says, no, cool, man, whatever. You know, tell him you yeah. have to play. That's no good. So, you know, it's it's a balance on on the relief valve, too, because it's not going to be a relief for some people. It's going to be a stressor for some people. Someone who doesn't play video games, like having a, you know, a gaming lunch. You know, if you do it every day at lunchtime, you're going to leave them out. That's why you don't do it all the time. You mix it up. So speaking of, <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to take that because we both we both looked at that one and said, speaking of. <laughs> so on that, um, our very next personality type is the jester. Yeah, and a jester will take the phrase work hard, play hard to heart, and they completely live their lives to the fullest. This means like extreme, like, you know, Remember like back in the 90s when everything was extreme this, extreme that. Yeah, it starts with an X. They like they were going so fast they left the E yes. off. <laughs> 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 and now it just looks terribly dated. Yeah, the the thing is with these kind of people is they're they're usually they're usually a lot of fun to work with. However, they also don't want to grow up a lot of times, um, but surprisingly, they end up with a fair bit of experience anyway because they tend to move when they get bored. Yeah. And I have a lot of these tendencies, and I think you do too, is that when we do get, we get bored, we've, you know, we've had enough, we're going to do something else. Yeah. Before you go into the bad one, let me say this. My management has done a really good job of learning this about me. And so they've put me into a role where I do a lot of new stuff. So I'll, I'll spend some time on something and they, they keep throwing stuff at me, like not overwhelming me, but throwing new stuff at me to the point where I don't, I, I don't get bored. And I really appreciate that. Like that's good management. But Will, you were going to talk yeah, about a bad mine situation. Yeah, pretty good about that too. Yeah. 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 Your, your, your management is good about that too. You've said stuff like that. So you were talking about a bad situation though. Yeah. Some of these people are always going to be like looking for the most interesting or extreme thing to do. And a lot of times they're pretty loud too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like if you're working in an office environment with them, one group that we run into, especially in Nashville, I think partially just because it's a Nashville thing is you get the, the aging rocker who's like in his mid forties and still dresses and acts like he's in his twenties. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those are hard to work with because the thing is, is that they should have the maturity and they expect to be treated like they have the maturity and then they don't. Yeah. And they're also too old to get away with the crap that they could do in their 20s because it turns out stuff starts hurting, <laughs> you know, and you get expenses and you get health conditions and, you know, you got to ease up. Um, I've worked those, with quite a few like this. Those all night benders don't, uh, don't play as well when you're in your 40s as they did back in your 20s. Yeah, well, and it turns out some of them also have all day benders, which is yeah. great. Some of them developed habits from their from their twenties, and it's just I don't know. I have I have seen people age well into this as well. Yeah, 
you know, I know, I know a few people again, being in Nashville, we know, know a lot of musicians. And, um, when I started learning guitar, I kind of got brought into like the musicians group at work. It was kind of cool. I didn't even know there was like a group of people that went out to lunch every now and then they were just all musicians and they talked about music stuff. Dave, um, our friend, he was, he was in it because he, you know, has a background in music and stuff, but, uh, and he was the one that told him about me. <laughs> um, but yeah. Still, like, I know some of them were older and they, you know, would occasionally go out and play gigs and stuff. I, where I take guitar lessons, we got some of the older guys there who still go out, like, they're in their 50s, late 50s, early 60s, still going out and playing and stuff like that. But they've learned how to manage that and their life. Yeah. I think the deal with, with people that uh, play hard is, it's one thing to say, okay, I work hard and I play hard. It's another thing to say, okay, I work some and I play hard. And the play hard becomes a bigger priority because you'll deal with these people in the office. That's where this goes bad. Yeah. And you'll deal with them in the office because you'll be constantly bailing them out because they can't get stuff done and they don't, you know, they don't organize their schedule. They don't prioritize things. Stuff gets done at the last minute because they were, Yesterday, they were hungover because they went to a party on a Tuesday night and, you know, you got a deadline and now you're having to work late to deal with it. You do have to kind of think about like when somebody has this type of personality, what are you going to do to keep their situations from disrupting you? One of those things is probably flexible schedules, remote work, those kind of things within reason. I would also say that the other thing is you have to make sure that you're never putting yourself in a position where their decisions harm your life. It's like if the project's going to fail because they screwed up, you have to let it fail because otherwise everything in your life fails and they still can keep on playing. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, I've run into quite a few of these you know, over the years. Yeah. Flexible schedules and remote work options tend to help them find their best time and way to code. That said, you still have to, they still have to get the job done. Yeah. One thing I've seen a lot with these kind of folks that really works well is you go, look, I know you got a lot of stuff going on. We're going to let you work remote as long as you can get your stuff done because now you're basically leveraging their tendency to play too much to your advantage because they want to continue doing that and to do that, now they have to help you. That, that's good. Or offer them a flex schedule where they can come in at 9 or 10 in the morning and stay later. When I was in my 20s, earlier 20s, and I was in grad school, I worked 3 to 11, the psychiatric hospital in the, the addictions unit. And that was great because most of my other friends, most of them had already graduated college or didn't go to college for that matter. But they would go out and like, I would work weekends and still get to go out with them. So like Friday night, I'd get off at 11 and I'd just take a change of clothes with me, change at work. And I was dressed to go out and I'd meet them about like, they might've been wherever they were going for about 20, 30 minutes before I got there. And then I could sleep in and go to work the next day, later in the day. It was the perfect schedule for that, that lifestyle. Um, it also worked well with, during the week because I would go to class in the mornings and then work in the afternoons. My lifestyle back then, it really hit it. That was the perfect uh, perfect timing for me. My lifestyle now, not so much. I don't really go 
go out to places like that. Uh, well, ever. <laughs> Just be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do that anymore either. Um, but I know people my age that do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do, too. I, like I worked with one guy who was an excellent developer when you could get him to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you know, he was coming into work. Badly hungover, you know, coming in late because he'd been out partying, leaving early because he'd been out partying, dealing with phone calls that were the consequences of his partying (laughs) on the clock. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just a thing of like, you're going to have to manage your interactions with those people so that their chaos does not infect your life unless this is who you are, in which case you're probably okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, or you're in in the same soup with them. Mm Mm-hmm. So speaking of not being okay, the next archetype that you will run into is the martyr. Yeah. And the martyr archetype, this is people that tend to go beyond being just a workaholic. Uh, They take a lot of pride in the amount of time they spend working. Some of them will sleep at the office because they work till 11 o'clock at night. And it's just like, oh, I'll just sleep and I'll get up in the morning and go to the staff meeting and then, you know, go home and get a shower and then come back in. You know, they'll have really dysfunctional working uh, schedules. Yeah. They lack that ability to have a life outside of coding, outside of work more than just coding, because they could go home and code on other things. So they, they lack that ability to have a life outside of work. So they spend all of their time in the office or coding at home, um, working on stuff. This isn't just in development. This is something like all of these kind of can apply to most other places. But this is a big one that's more than just in development. You'll see this in, in all areas of the workforce. But with with this, they will they will work themselves literally to death sometimes. Like to the point where they get so sick they can't work. And then they feel bad about it because they can't work because they've taken on they've done so much and they can't work and they feel bad that they can't And eventually the other thing that they end up doing is they end up presenting their coworkers for having a life. Um, So I've worked with people that were like this and they're like working 70 hours a week and taking on more stuff. And then they're mad because, oh, you got to leave to go record your podcast or you got to leave to go pick up your kid. It's like, you know, dude, I've, I've worked 50 hours this week. You know, it's Thursday. I've worked 50 hours and you're mad at me because, yes, I have a life. I don't plan to die in my chair here. Yeah, they, they'll either get mad at you or they will they will kind of look down on you. I've had that where I, I was talking to someone and I was like, I said something about I had adjusted my schedule so that I start work earlier in the day so I could get done because I was doing, I was helping out with the several things at church. And I was like, that way I can just, I can have a little bit of me time before I leave to go do that. You know, some like some downtime between work and then the other stuff I was doing. And they're like, oh, well, I'm starting at that time and work until seven or eight o'clock at night. I'm like, well, that's your choice, not mine. You're not getting paid any extra for it. <laughs> like, the last time I had somebody say that to me, um, my comment wasn't very nice. I actually asked them how they got through the door with that cross on their back. Wow. <laughs> In a meeting. <laughs> well, this, is, this, just was like, a, this was a private conversation and I was just like, you know, I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just sort of let it slide. But I, I thought in the back of my head, I'm like, you know, that's your choice. You're the one who chooses to do that. So don't, don't look down on me. Don't blame me for putting in my full amount of time. That'd be one thing if I were slacking off and I were, you know, not 
not putting in my full amount of time, then I'd agree with them. I'm like, yeah, you, you should be. Yeah. Can I get on a small rant? Just a brief rant about this archetype. Just a wee bit. Very, very short. Very, a tiny rant. A wee dram of a rant. These kind of people will destroy your team. They're, they make the rest of the team look bad because the rest of the team is working to live, not the other way around. You're probably going to have to do something like enforce a no overtime or restricted overtime policy just to keep these people from destroying themselves. And oh, by the way, they're on your health plan. So the employees that they're looking down on, once they you know have a stroke or something because of the crap they're doing, the rest of the employees get to pay mm-hmm. for that as part of their medical coverage if you're in the U.S. and it's done that way. The big thing with these people is that they are willing to work extra for free. And this does a lot of stuff. One thing it does is it normalizes overwork, which shouldn't happen. It normalizes really stupid, inefficient processes and it it normalizes interruptions because they can deal with it because they've got 80 hours to get this crap done. You've got 40. Yeah. You know, I used to be like this and that's why I I come down on it so hard is because it provides you nothing. Like you will, you'll lose your job and all that extra time that you work for free, you get nothing out of it. You screwed your previous team over and now you're starting over and you're burnt out when you go into your next job. Mm -hmm. This is a really hard group to work with. Now, if you manage them, you've got to limit their ability to do that. Yeah. And if you you are like me, your personality type lends you towards this. This is something I have to watch out for a lot because. Yep. Same here. You know, and that's why I have, I have so many different things that I do because it's funny when I have one thing that I'm putting all of my effort into, I don't notice how it's eating away at me. But when I've got like a bunch of different things, when I, I can more easily say, no, I can't take on any more. I've got enough going on. But when it's like one thing yeah. that's just really overwhelming me and it's not a matter of, I want to like make my life about work. It's more a matter of, I want to be my personality type. It's I want to be a helper. I want to be there. I want to, you know, do that. And I can very easily fall into that, like overworking and then resenting people who don't work as much. Or trying to be like, look at all this that I did without any other any help from anybody else. And these are these are things that I have to I have to fight in myself because I have a natural tendency towards this. And I have to put in my own enforced no overtimes or restricted overtimes, or these are the times I'm working. These are the times I'm spending working on the podcast. You know, like just earlier today yep. I had to do that with an outline that you you sent to me. To review and I'm like, hey, I can't, I can't write show notes for these two points. So I need you to go back in there and, yep. and make some adjustments. So, yeah, I actually am holding up. Now, Beach can see it, and y'all can't, but I have a a breakdown of my schedule, um, like for an ideal week, right here on my desk that I was just working on before we started recording because I have this same mm-hmm. tendency, and it's like I have to time box stuff, and you have to schedule stuff a little bit after the end of the workday so that you stop working. Yeah, because otherwise, yeah, I'll just keep going. Yeah, same here. I put these people on blast because I know what it does. It's it's funny. The it's something that I've heard um, like speakers say before. I tend to rail more on the people who are like me because yeah. I I know the temptations and the things you can fall into. So with that, the final one we're going to talk about today is the ruler, and the ruler thinks that they are a natural born leader, while they may be one. They, they may very well be a natural born leader. They are not in a leadership position or management position on the team or the project. And this is hard too. If you've, if you've been in a managerial position 
or a leadership position before, and then you get moved to something else where you're not. Mm-hmm. Cause you'll start like, I caught myself doing that today. I was like, well, we should do this. And it's like, wait, I, I'm not a team lead. Yeah. And my advice was still taken, but <laughs> it was like, ah, I shouldn't have dumped that in there. Cause it's, it wasn't, wasn't my place. Mm-hmm. But this archetype is especially toxic when you see behavior patterns that make it very clear that they don't understand other people are different than them. And it, it may be a lack of, or an inept leadership that brings them to light eventually they are going to attempt to take over the team. Yeah. And sometimes you have to do that, by the way, because you, you get on a team where stuff is just not working and nobody's leading the team. And so when you start making decisive decisions, like all of a sudden you become a leader just because you're just trying to cut through the crap. And that there's, there is a difference between someone who steps up to take on a leadership position when they aren't a leader to get things done versus the ruler personality type who thinks they are a leader and it acts that way even when they're not needed. Yeah. I always think of this type as almost being like a chihuahua, Mm -hmm. you know, they're like nipping at the heels of everybody bigger than them, but they don't have the strength to actually be in charge and to weigh decisions carefully. Some people that are this archetype do so because they think they're the most valuable member of the team, whereas others are perfectionists and, they want things to be done in their way, mm-hmm. and that's what they define as perfect. Or they may insist on using a particular language or tool or framework because they know that it's the best one to use in this situation, and they won't hear from anyone else. It's one thing to have an opinion and say, hey, I think this is the best, here's why, and then other people say, you like have a discussion about it, but these are, no, this is the best, and we're going to use this, and just bringing the whole project to a halt until everyone agrees with them. Yeah. I've worked with quite a few of those. And I mean, the the trick with this type is that you really, really need to have strong leadership as a manager. And you need to be able to help this person learn how to manage better. Like if that's what they're going for, they need to not suck at it when they get there. Mm-hmm. And so one thing you can do is distract them with stuff that points them in the direction that they're already trying to go so that they're not inflicting that crap on your team yeah a really good way to do this is to provide them like a small project where they can manage themselves like they may be the only developer on it or you give them a junior developer to work with but then you set specific deadlines for them they can take any route they want they can manage the whole the project the small little project from point a to point b but they have to be at point b at a certain time right you still have like that here's when you have to have it done do whatever you have to do within these limitations. Like, you know, it still has to work with our system and we have to be able to maintain it and all that stuff. And, and you can't treat your uh, reports like crap. Yeah. Because there, there is a way to deal with this and to harness it. It's just most companies do a really poor job of that. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with the backbiting and all the other stuff that goes with it. Yeah, that's true. So guys, if you are familiar with uh, Carl Jung's 12 archetypes, you might have noticed some similarities with a few of the ones that we mentioned here. Take some time and reflect on the ones of these which with which you identify. You know, kind of what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? This is definitely not an exhaustive list of interpersonal archetypes. Instead, it's a group of the ones you're most likely to encounter within your career. It's the ones that Will and I have seen a lot while there are others out there, you can use this list to better understand your coworkers, your managers, 
and even your friends in the development community. Well, that pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, um, this is something that uh, I guess applies to the archetypal paradigm. It also applies to the kind of people that you're dealing with that match those archetypes. It also deals with your software development tools. And that is, is that a tool does not have to be perfect to be useful. It just has to be better than what you have. It's really easy to look at just about anything and say, okay, well, it doesn't perfectly match everything you see in the world, so therefore it can't help me. When The fact is, if something works better than what you have currently, you should be using it, uh, even if you can see the exceptions up front. In fact, if you know the exceptions up front, you're probably better off using it than you are using something that theoretically works better that you don't fully understand, because then you don't know what those exceptions are and you get nailed by them typically see the holes in something once you actually understand it. I just want to point that out. You know, nothing ruins good things quite as thoroughly as hoping for perfect things. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.